God, in a moment, we're going to hear words from the Holy Bible. We pray that you open our ears, hear what it is to say. We want to welcome you into this space. We want to welcome these words. We are not fed daily just by bread, but by our faith. In your name we pray. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 15. I do not say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Let me offer this short prayer for us. God, we ask that somewhere between the words that are spoken and the words that are heard, your Holy Spirit is powerfully present. Amen. So right now we are in week four of a four-week sermon series on our welcome statement. So it concludes today. And the title of this is Jesus' Radical Hospitality, Comfort, Challenge, and Change. Each week we come in here to worship and we gather in the hope that it's, it's God who gathers us and God who meets us here, God who seeks to transform us. And one of the particular tangible places where God meets us is at this table in the cup and the bread where God seeks to meet and transform us. And there is a place for you and for many. At Jesus' table, there's always enough room for one more, enough food for every stomach, enough drink for everyone who thirsts. And that's a great comfort, right? And yet there are many who show up to Jesus' table, many who look like us, who we call friends, who we agree with, who we come to love easily. And there are also those sitting next to us at Jesus' table whom we might agree, agree, disagree with, 
who might look different from us or who it's a little more challenging for us to love. And so the challenge is to see the divine mark and image of God within each person that sits next to us, whether we can identify with them or not. The challenge is to see that each person has need of Jesus. And the challenge is to see how our, ch- our sitting there at the table requires us to change our attitude, perhaps, our mindset, our agenda, and our relationship with others. Requiring our stony hearts to be shaped by the love and the pattern of Jesus Christ to recognize humanity and the image of God in the other and to work through differences that respects both each person. And it requires us to imagine how this isn't just the case when we come here on Sunday morning, but how we love with each thought and with each pattern of our heartbeat and with every action in our day-to-day life. Over the past four weeks, we've been reflecting on this through our statement and how it challenges us to be welcoming and loving to people of different sexual identities and gender identities, different and diverse abilities, and people of all walks and races of life. And today we conclude with, uh, with a focus on how our communion at the body, in the body of Christ, and how this table means we're connected and responsible to others with our finances, amidst the great socioeconomic diversity of God's people. And I want to get at this by showing some examples um, from beginning to end in God's story, from the garden to Israel to Jesus and to the church. And it shows God's great concern for economic justice and care for the poor and the responsibility, the social responsibility of the rich. So in the beginning, God's story opens with this picture of overflowing abundance where there is enough for people, enough food, enough water, enough resources, enough opportunities for each person to work and to flourish. It's this wonderful image at the very beginning of Scripture, which charts God's desire for human life. But if we move to the time after that image, into the life of Israel, we get a clear picture of God's commitment to the economic health and justice and flourishing of all, it actually comes from a really dark time in the the life of the people of Israel, when things really got off track. And so, enter the the prophet Amos. And the prophet Amos, there's Amos right there, which actually is just a a shameless way for me to put a a picture of, of my dog up there with John the Baptist. John the Baptist reincarnated, huh? Anyway, so that's my dog Amos. He's a little bigger now, and uh, you might have had the opportunity to come in and feed him a treat, or he might have barked at you, and I'm sorry for that. He's just a little cautious. He's a little cautious, but he loves each person. And so Amos, uh, in the Bible, not my dog, is this shepherd from the town of Tekoa. And he's this Jewish prophet who had this incredible burden of, of coming to God's people and calling them out on their crap to put it lightly. The book takes place in 750 BC, which might not mean too much to us, but it's, it's this prosperous time for the nation of Israel. It's this time after King David 
established the kingdom of Israel, after Solomon really built it up, and after other kings really expanded it. Things are going really well for Israel. There's this long period of peace and security and development and revival, and there should have been enough for all. But amidst this prosperity and this comfort, the people, specifically the the leaders and those who have power and wealth, they relinquish their grip on Yahweh upon the one true God, and they begin running toward other gods of the nations around them, and they wrap the arms of their hearts around those guys, those gods. And as they do this, they begin to love the ways of those other nations. And before long, the Israelites' life looks similar to those whom they weren't supposed to represent to the world. And they begin to embrace practices that advantage the wealthy over the poor and the powerless. Amos, the prophet, decried this with these words. You abuse the poor and demand heavy taxes from them. You cheat honest people and take bribes. You rob the poor of justice and push aside the needy at the gate. And times are so evil that anyone with good sense just keeps quiet. If you really want to live, God says, you must stop doing wrong and start doing right. Seek good instead of evil and see that justice is done. Go to the gate and lift up the needy. And maybe I, the Lord all-powerful, will be with you and kind to you. God's love burned like a furious fire over the injustices of the rich and the powerful and the religious leaders because everything they did went against this vision that was charted from the beginning that we talked about just a moment earlier where people were meant to flourish. Amos is this book of God's judgment against God's own people. But there's this moment of hope at the end when Amos says, a day is coming and on that day, God tells me that God will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair the breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild Israel as in the days of old. We trust, we believe, we hope that that day came when God chose to wrap himself in flesh to show us a better way, to come and pick up the fallen to come and repair the lives of many and to build a new community of people committed to God's ways. We believe this happened when Jesus came to be with us. And as Jesus taught and ministered, he reminded people that God is generous and of that good vision from Genesis that we spoke about earlier, where there was always enough. One story in particular sticks out to me, and maybe you know it, It's a story in Jesus' ministry when he is out in this wilderness. It's a barren land. There's scarce anything to do or to help people to live. And he's ministering to people. And at the end of a long day, he sees the hunger and the weariness. And he calls his disciples and he says, do we have anything to feed these people? And they say, we only have these these couple fish and some five loaves. What's that going to do? 
And Jesus invites them into an incredible moment where he takes these things and he blesses them and gives thanks for what God has given and he breaks that and invites his disciples to go and share these things with the people who sitted there, sitting there. And the amazing thing is, is from this meager provision comes this bountiful, plentiful feast where everybody is filled and has had enough and can even take some home in their first century Tupperware. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. But it's a beautiful story, a story in one in which Jesus is inviting the disciples into an incredible experience, and it's a symbolic act of how Jesus will hand off his ministry to the people there who are seeking to follow him, and how they will be the leaders who are to go into the world and establish and work and build up the world so that the world might flourish and come to experience the flourishing that God had designed and intended from the beginning. This new community would be an example for the rest of the world of God's heart for the world. And, and, and the amazing thing is it, is it takes place. If you leave the Gospels and you're traveling through your, your story of Scripture, if you go over to the Acts of the Apostles, there's a story at the very beginning, Acts 2, where it says that all the believers who trusted in Jesus were together and they all had things in common. And they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And so the earliest church was beginning to take on this vision and this role of satisfying God's vision for economic justice and flourishing by caring for the material needs of all. But some didn't. <laughs> some didn't like the Christians in Corinth who Paul is talking about this morning. The thing that Larry read this morning is actually Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's a second letter, but the first one is um, Paul's more scathing review of the Corinthians. Now, what's happening in, uh, in Corinth, which Corinth is this major city. It's like the big apple of the ancient world, so to speak. It was a metropolis, it had the wealthy there, it was this hot place for philosophy and learning where all these cultures were mixing, and it was just an incredible place. But these influence were, influences were taking hold in the church, and Paul was mad about it because the, the Christians there in Corinth, their lives were looking a lot like the Israelites back in the days of Amos. Paul's mad because because of the fact that the Christians were keeping up more with the, the Greek household codes than God's household codes. Meaning that the rich people were hosting these lavish feasts and eating all the good food and drinking choice wines. But then, but then the, the, the poor people and the servants and the slaves, after their, their work was done, came in to enjoy the leftovers and the scraps and the food that had been sitting out for hours. And the problem with this is the fact that, that they were sharing these meals and connecting that with communion, the meal that we share, which is supposed to represent the unity of God's people with God. And so Paul's mad because the allure of wealth and status has divided the body of believers in a way that was so offensive to God.
After a while, I think the Corinthians got on board. (laughs) Things got better. And by the time Paul writes his second letter to the Corinthians, his his tone has changed. Instead of having to rebuke them in the way and get mad at them like he did in his first letter, in his second letter, Paul is inspiring them and encouraging them to this wonderful vision of generosity, a nobler vision of generosity. And he says this, and Larry read it earlier. It isn't that we want others to have financial ease and you financial difficulties. It's a matter of equality. At the present moment, your surplus can fill their deficit so that in the future, their surplus can fill your deficit. In this way, there is equality. And as it is written, the one who gathered more didn't have too much. And the one who gathered less didn't have too little. Paul is helping them to to pry their hearts from the ways of the old world and to wrap their hearts around the vision of Jesus, to wrap around this vision that, that, that surplus and what we have can contribute to the lives of others so that all have enough. Now, I don't know about you, but I can empathize a little bit and see within my own life um, what was happening with the Corinthians, the, the tugs of the world, so to speak, because it's easy to get caught up in the woo of this world. And I'm not trying to say, like, the world is bad and all material things are bad, because that's a, this old song and dance that just isn't right, because because of the fact that within God's story, within the message of Jesus, is God's declaration that the world is good and the, and the whole world is filled with the grandeur of God. Earth is filled with his glory and God triumphs over evil. But that doesn't mean that at times we can't be led astray and that our hearts are immune from turning and running toward things that hold empty promises of happiness and prosperity and comfort in life. During the the past week, I was able to read a book called Being Consumed, which is a book by a Catholic ethicist named uh, William Kavanaugh. And it's a book about economics and faith. And Kavanaugh says this, rather than blessing or damning the, the free market economy, which is kind of the so economic structure that kind of guides us in our culture, in this country, and in this world. Instead of blessing or damning it, I want to focus our attention on concrete Christian attempts to discern and create economic practices and spaces and transactions that are truly free. <coughs> Kavanaugh paints a picture of, of free markets as in favorable light, preferring them to other economic structures, But it nonetheless does not account for a vision of human freedom and flourishing that we see in Scripture and that we've been learning about. Here's an example that's given. For instance, market forces compel shoe producers to be on the lookout for the cheapest way to produce an item for consumers who are always looking for a bargain. So they move factories from the U.S. to Cambodia where someone will work in hazardous conditions for 38 cents on the dollar. 
And the problem is not just in the producer moving the plant away from Bill, a father who's trying to support his family with work in a factory. It's also that the consumer, the one buying the shoe, becomes more distant from the woman suffering in the factory. Not to mention the added bonuses given to CEOs, which is driving the wage inequality and shrinking the middle class we're seeing here in America. And such issues are not just relegated to, to, to shoe companies, but have their way more broadly throughout this world. Now, we don't have to just throw out the whole free market economy thing with the bathwater, but, but that doesn't mean as Christians we can't have the courage to name some of the ills that, that capitalism and free market economies can produce in the world. Ills which we feel powerless to do nothing about. And I think one of the things that, that I think about with this is, and the ills that happens, is, is the power of mindlessness in consuming, which I think is what God perhaps invites us away from. Because I think within our culture, the greatest tendency is just to consume and consume and consume. We are powerless when we are detached from the people who produce the things or uninformed about the products we buy. And instead, the question in every transaction is, is whether or not the transaction contributes to flourishing for each person involved. And how we, in our places, in our concrete spaces, can be local expressions of what God truly intends. And so the reconfiguring of of our ways of life, of our patterns of living, our, of, our, of our buying and our power to shape perhaps a witness that is economically just, I think begins right here at this table. Um, in this book, Kavanaugh writes this. It would be easy enough to assume the assumption, um, assimilate the consumption of the Eucharist into just a consumeristic spirituality, that the presence of Jesus is just another thing to consume. To, end, to benefit me as the individual user. But the practice of celebrating communion resists this because the individual consumer of, the, of communion does not simply take Christ into herself, but she is taken up into a larger body, the body of Jesus Christ. And so, instead of consuming this thing, the body of Christ is becoming the surrounding, engulfing culture in which we are found. We are consumed by it. Put plainly, when we come to this table, we're reminded that we're connected to God who became human, and we sit at a table where perhaps there is present both the man who lost his job at this shoe shop and also the woman in Cambodia. Sitting at the Jesus' table is a, is a wonderful comfort, yes, but it makes life so much more challenging and complicated. Because when I sit at that table and have the knowledge that my being there is connected to other people who I'm connected to, then I have to ask tough questions. I have to ask, how do I love Bill, that father who just lost his job because his job got shipped overseas? And how do I love the woman in Cambodia? How am I mindful that their well-being and their flourishing and my ability to purchase could add or subtract to them? And I don't have the answer exactly. Because it's a really, really complex question. 
But the thing is, is that, that, that maybe we can conspire and think about how, how we affect things in this world just by the purchasing power and the daily actions that we do. And as Paul pushed the Corinthians toward, there's this noble vision of venturing into living generously and with a sense of God's economic justice. And so we start by feasting at this table and how there's always enough for everyone, and we allow that grace to shape our lives and our hearts. And maybe from here, from Sunday morning, we go into this this week with a different sense about us. We go into this week and we become more knowledgeable about the things that we buy. We perhaps stop by the local farm stands here in Gilderland that are so plentiful so that we can get to know the people that produced and grew, grow our food. Perhaps we can make certain things like bread or cheese or wine or scarves or blankets or things that just help us to appreciate labor and production. And perhaps also, maybe we can experience and dive into more generous acts like, like joining Peg and, and so many other people that go down and serve meals at the city mission on Monday nights and other nights of the week. I'm not saying that we're going to fix everything in, in our society that's broken or within us that's broken, but I'm saying maybe we can change some patterns of living to be more conscious about God's economic vision of justice and see what changes those things bring. Let's pray. God, may your spirit continue speaking beyond what I can, beyond what human words can do, so that deep within your your spirit speaks words that your people need to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is a joy to be able to